You are listening to season three of the Not Neurotypical podcast. I'm your host, Laura Stan, and this season has a very new big plot twist. So hold on tight, strap on your seatbelts, because it's still going to be a bumpy ride. And is that bumpy ride ever going to get smoother? Season three of the Not Neurotypical podcast is proudly sponsored by Timo, the award-winning app designed to support neurodivergent people with routine and scheduling. Head to your app store and type T-I-I-M-O to learn more. Hello and welcome. It is Tuesday, October 6th, 2020. I don't know how that happened, but we're here. And wow, lots going on. But first, before we dive into this episode 26 already, I just wanted to leave a quick reminder that if you enjoy what you hear on the Not Neurotypical podcast with me, your host, Laura Stan, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or if any platform that you use to listen to your podcast leaves reviews, I would love to hear your review. But if you have any constructive criticism or things that you wish I would add to the podcast, I also want to hear those. My email is hello at laurastan.com. That's hello at l-a-u-r-a-z-d-a-n.com. And I look forward to hearing from you. Long before the discovery of genetics and the study of genetics and long before autism was an official diagnosis or even a neurotype, there was a theory called the refrigerator mother theory. And this theory was originally coined around 1950 And it was the label for mothers of autistic children, or at the time, it was called childhood schizophrenia. If you didn't know, originally, autism was seen as a form of onset, early onset schizophrenia, which was mostly onset at the time and still um, later in life. Um, This was obviously due to a lack of understanding. But Leo Kanner was a doctor, and he was the first person to kind of notice autism in general or, you know, autistic people. And he studied them. He studied kids who all had um, similar rituals, atypical behavior, um, difficulty with speech, self-isolation, and that's what he noticed, and that's what caused him to want to learn more about these children. What he noticed originally was the family. He wanted to learn more about the children. He spent a lot of time in the children's homes um, or where they were institutionalized, and doing that, he got to know the family a little more. Um, And he noted quite a few mothers who he said, quote, lacked maternal warmth. Now, obviously today, this has been debunked. And it's very interesting, but I wanted to talk about it more because it's a funny thing because a lot of people that I know that were late diagnosed and myself included, 
have a history of lack of maternal warmth. Now, I'm not going to define maternal warmth. I think that that comes from an ableist place. And what I mean by that is maternal warmth to me seems very much to be seen probably in a neurotypical way, um, probably even in a sexist way. There's this idea of the perfect woman, quote, end quote, in our society. And very often it's seen as a nurturer, a lover, a giver. And on the opposite and detrimental end of that is a slave, a woman who owes everything to her family and is very much not celebrated or thanked. It's her job. It's her role. And, you know, this is stuff that women really fight with as they grow up. So without going into all of the politics and all of that surrounding these theories, I just wanted to talk more about it because I find it so interesting because I grew up with a mother who lacked maternal warmth. So when I first read about that, I was like, wow, that's very interesting. Obviously today we know that autism is genetic, so I am not posturing that this theory is true, but I would just love to kind of go into the mechanics and the history of autism and also want to point out that Canner's original theory of the refrigerator mother not only was it debunked, but he actually regretted later ever talking about that and basically debunked it himself. And as he come, as he came to understood under, oh, I cannot talk. <laughs> as he came to understand autism and as the theories all developed together and as he got to see more he changed his opinion about that personally. And I find it very, very interesting. Um, in 1969, Canner addressed the refrigerator mother issue at the first annual meeting of what is now called the Autism Society of America. And he stated, quote, from the very first publication until the last, I spoke of this condition in no uncertain terms as, quote, an eight. But because I described some of the characteristics of the parents as persons, I misquoted often as having said that, quote, it is all the parents' fault, end quote. And he felt like a lot of what he had to say was a little misunderstood. I think that he and a lot, if you read his original paper on autism, which I will do, I'll put a link to that in my, it's a PDF online that you can read. It's so interesting. First of all, I want to point out that he almost 50%, I think there's four girls that he studied originally and five or six boys. I think there's 11 or 12 in the original paper. Um, girls from the beginning are very present, almost 50% in the studies. I find that so interesting because even in the 90s, um, so much later, we're talking, you know, 50 years later, um, girls were completely uh, erased from studies for the most part. 
And I find that so interesting considering the first observations of what would eventually be autism. Girls were very represented and almost 50% so. So almost equal representation, not quite. Um, I find that so interesting. And in the paper, if you read it, um, it's really just his observations. He's sharing what he noticed. Um, it's obviously his observations and coming from him, but there was definitely ableism in the 1940s. There was still, um, eugenics very present in medical terminology and study and all of that. So the truth is that, of course, there are some not so lovely things in the paper, but also when you read it, it's very interesting how much is not negative. Stuff that are is often viewed as negative today, he didn't really write in a negative tone. For instance, um, he originally observed, because I just want to point out that he had followed and and kept up relationships with these children's for children for years before he wrote his paper and um one fascinating tidbit that i found was he talked about how while the children very early on seemed very disinterested in relationships and um you know in in eye contact and things like you know the things that we all know about he basically postured that a lot of that improved over time and the kids on their own started to see, okay, you know, I need to be in this world. I want to be more present. And, um, I'm not, this is just from the paper, by the way, this is not me talking. (laughs) Um, and he noticed that the kids by their own doing in development, slowly came around and wanted to be more of a part of their families and things like that, which I found shocking because nowadays you hear about early intervention and you hear all of this stuff basically saying, you know, these kids need to learn all this stuff early or whatever. And the original observations was very much so that the children are just walking to the beat of their own drum, but eventually, if they want to, they come around and, and things like that. So I found this paper incredibly interesting, um, but not without its things that needed to be reformed. But of course, as we grow to understand anything, that also comes around. So while you have the original pretty profound understanding. You also have a lot of misunderstanding because um, his first paper wrote about mostly extreme, what he called autistic aloneness, which is where all of the words came from, from the original diagnosis um, or the eventual diagnosis, I should say. Um, Delayed echolalia and what he called anxiously obsessive desire for the maintenance of sameness. And I think a lot of us can resonate, like a lot of that resonates with us. I know that all resonates with me. Um, He also did view autism as a profound emotional disturbance that does not affect cognition. Um, 
In keeping with that perspective, the second edition of the DSM, which is the DSM-2, which was published in 1952, defined autism as a psychiatric condition and a form of childhood schizophrenia, as I earlier said, marked by a detachment from reality. Now we know that that is not true. Um, We're just different. Um, I think that Because it's a spectrum, some of us are more, quote, different than others. We all have different interests, different personalities. We all have different cultural backgrounds. We all have very different parents. We all live in very different environments. Some of us are abused. Some of us are not. Some of us had very supportive families. Um, So the range is so wide. But Like I said, during the 50s and 60s, autism was thought to be rooted in refrigerator mothers. Um, It was actually Bruno Bettelheim, Bettelheim, sorry, who dubbed that term based on Kanner's original paper and findings. Um, It has been said later that Bruno Bettelheim kind of dubbed it that and took it to a level that Kanner really didn't want to, but it happened. And... It was something that was very harmful to mothers at the time um, who, let's face it, what we know about genetics now, very, very possible that these mothers were also autistic and um, probably struggled in their environments and maybe struggled with the transition into family and and all of that, just like I very much did, honestly. And it's very interesting. Um, Leo Kanner also, like I just said, um, found that it did not affect cognition and even um, noted that a lot of the autistic people that, or kids, I should say, that he observed had um, very, very highly, very highly intelligent. They were, sorry, I'm talking really bad. (laughs) I'm having one of those days where I can't talk very well. So just try to stay with me. Um, It does happen. I know it's so funny. Um, I get comments about this podcast and reviews and they talk about how well-spoken I am and how, uh, how much I break it down. And I just want to point out that, um, I often prepare in some way, or I don't like write everything down and I'm not reading from a script or anything, but I really do organize my thoughts so that things come out clearly. Uh, And when I read that, I laugh so hard, not because I think it's untrue or anything like that, but um, just because I do really have to prepare for the podcast and how I present my information and and just kind of I have days where I prepare and I can just sense that it's not going to happen and I just don't record those days. Um and as you're seeing right now I'm kind of like stumbling. So just bear with me. Um thank you. <laughs> but where was I? Uh basically um he noticed and noted often about the exceptional memory of the autistic kids that he followed and their um, 
very, very high intelligence in some areas, and then um, at times noted some difficulties that they had relating to learning and things like that. Um, so from the beginning, there there was not this, um, you know, understanding that, you know, autism was not seen as something that now, I mean, I think there's a lot of stigma around people, if they kind of think they might be autistic or ADHD, there's almost like this intelligence component and their, and their first thought, unfortunately, in this ableist society that we live in, their first thought is, oh no, I'm autistic, ADHD, dyslexic or whatever. Am I stupid? No, I'm not stupid. I can't be that. And, and I say that as a quote, um, not to harm anybody, but because that is something that people believe and that's wrong. You know, we are all very, very different. Autism is at times comorbid with cognitive disabilities or impairments. Um, and I say that, you know, not lightly or anything like that at times, you know, people all have different challenges. You see autism comorbid with Down syndrome. You see it comorbid with, um, a number of things. Um, so I think that it's really important to separate autism from other things just for clarity and to understand and for educational purposes. Um, even in the diagnosis, you will find, at least in the DSM-5 currently, you will find autism with or without an intellectual disability as it's termed. And... Um, that's the point is that there are different forms, but autism is autism. It's a spectrum. And whether you have one or the other, you're autistic, whether you have it with or without an intellectual disability, there are nonverbal autistic people. There are semi-verbal autistic people. There are children who are nonverbal until 10 who um, develop the skills later and are fully verbal by adulthood. And, you know, we're all just so different. That's my point. And um, none of that necessarily has anything to do with intelligence or IQ, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, and that's a whole other wormhole and that's a whole other debate. But anyway, um, I found it very interesting that the original findings were coming from a place of, you know, seeing that intelligence and noticing the the speech differences as it relates to intelligence that maybe he was surprised. Maybe he, with all of the stuff going on in the 40s and where we kind of came from in the 40s was a much different time, especially in America. Um, you know, maybe he was surprised by the actual intelligence as he got to know the children. I don't really know if he clarifies that. But um, by the 60s or 70s, the refrigerator mother concept, as I said, was disproved. Um, and, you know, those mothers that were charged, I mean, that's a charge um, against the mothers who were very likely autistic themselves. They had to live with that, you know, that idea, the medical field telling them, this is your fault. Your child has struggles and things like that because of you. Um, I also want to point out, by the way, it wasn't just refrigerator mothers. I think that 
the Bruno guy, Bettelheim, who dubbed that. He took it to another place. I know Kanner in his original paper also talked about both parents as well um, being cold at times. He definitely did not only talk about mothers, but like we've said, he was really just sharing his observations of the children he was following and their families. And let's face it, mothers are not free and clear from this, from the medical field. Um, We talk about anxiety. There has been countless studies that um, focuses on a mother's anxiety and how it affects children negatively and things like that and puts all of this guilt on um, mothers and the development of their children. Um, And whether they meant to do that or not, when they were doing the study, um, you know, this is the outcome and, and there's just not a lot of resources out there for parents who let's face it. We're all kind of trying to support our children and also support our own mental health at the same time. And sometimes that's not done perfectly. Um, but the last thing we need in my opinion, is uh, the medical model kind of coming at us. Um, I really think we need a lot more community support for parents of autistic children and autistic parents of autistic children and um, really any, any neurodiverse family really needs more support. I think that's one thing that is needed across the board in every country, in every culture, in every community, there is not enough support. Of course, some communities are better than others, but I think there is room for improvement everywhere. And I think we do that by kind of doing it ourselves. Like the government's not going to do it. We can't really depend on them. They can try. We can, we can hope that there's organizations that are going to do this well, or we can do it together. Um, I mean, that's one major reason I created the Autistically Squad, formerly called the Not Neurotypical Squad, because I really felt like there needed to be a place off of social media for somewhere for people to go to be safe and ask questions and learn and educate each other and uh, without judgment or fear of abuse or fear of being misunderstood. And also without fear of asking, quote, the wrong question, because on social media, you see that a lot where new autism parents and and new autistic people or late diagnosed ask the question and someone jumps down their throat and they're like, Um, (laughs) but that's not my style at all. I really wanted to create a place where people can be safe to ask the questions. And I truly believe that we grow together through dialogue and through asking the questions. I needed to ask a lot of questions because I was raised in a very extremely fundamentalist, rigid household and religious. They were very fundamental Protestant Christians, my family. And that means, unfortunately for my household and a lot of the other households that I know of that I grew up near, That means homophobic, ableist, misogynist, racist, and all of that other stuff. So to just assume that I was supposed to know how everything worked and everything about neurodiversity, even though I knew I was 
neurodiver or I was neurodivergent, you know, since 12 with ADHD, I still needed to be able to ask some questions and to learn. Um, I had been kicked out of multiple Facebook groups, um, just for asking questions. And at times it was, well, why, you know, it was just asking why to statements and, and theories that autistic adults had. Um, and you know, to be fair, like, I don't want to talk crap on that either. I think a lot of the times it's more coming from a place of past trauma and abuse. And I understand that. And, um, I'm not saying that autistic adults are bad or horrible or anything like that, but, you know, there is kind of a line in autism as an adult of late diagnosed people. And then on the other side of that line is autistic people diagnosed as children. Um, and the late diagnosed autistic people need help and education. I mean, that's really what this podcast is all about. Like, let's go on this journey together and talk about it let's be genuine and real and let's ask the tough questions or let's ask the questions that maybe we're scared to ask um, because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I think at the end of the day, um, it's a whole new world that we find ourselves in and we need that chance to really ask. And it's the same. And I just want to point out it's the same for autism parents. I mean, there was a about a week where my son was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder where I thought I was now an autism mom and I kind of went into that world. I very quickly kind of dipped my toes into that world and very quickly took my toes out of that world. Um, just naturally, I think obviously deep down, I knew I was autistic. And, and like I said, I've had my hand in neurodiversity and things like that. Um, for a long time, uh, through ADHD, as you know, but my point being is that autism parents also need that same respect, um, whether they are going to figure out that they possibly are autistic or not, or they just have a few traits. Um, they also have a lot of questions to ask and maybe it shouldn't always see, be seen as bad, um, or a negative thing to do. I don't see questions as a threat. Um, I see it as someone actively searching for answers. And how is that a bad thing? So, okay, like maybe they're asking the wrong questions, but it's definitely not our place to always just be so combat combative and all of that. And I think we have a duty also to educate uh, especially those who are seeking answers. And maybe you don't like how the seeking is being proposed or, you know, how the questions they're asking specifically, but they're asking. And I think that's a great thing because I don't know about y'all, but when my son was diagnosed, everyone sent me, and by everyone, I mean the doctors, all doctors send you to the Autism Speaks website. Um, so if you come across someone who just found out that their kid is autistic and they're asking questions, I think that should be celebrated because a lot of them probably were 
sent directly to the Autism Speaks website. I know that's very, very common in America, at least. And it should be celebrated and they should be welcomed. Instead, the what happens if they are immediately attacked or told that they're asking the wrong questions is we push them directly into the arms of what a lot of autistic people see as the enemy. We are pushing them right back into the Autism Speaks curriculum. And that's where they'll get their education. And myself and so many other autistic people don't agree with so much of the Autism Speaks education. Um, so it's just really important. And basically, my whole thing here is that the horrible history of refrigerator mothers shouldn't be perpetuated by our community. And what I mean by that is when a dad or mom is actively seeking and maybe they ask, quote, the wrong question or something that we see as wrong, are we doing the same thing to them that originally happened where it was like, oh, your kid's all messed up because of you? Um, or, you know, this is all happening because you didn't do a good job or you're not giving your kid the environment. I've seen that a lot. And, and maybe that's true, but is that doing anyone any good to make that decision without knowing people and just saying that on the internet. Um, we're just pushing people away from neurodiversity with that outlook. And I think it's so important that we see the history of autism and remember that and not repeat the same mistakes that the medical field did to parents of autistic people and perpetuate the myths and stigmas about us. I mean, let's face it, there we are often seen as cold and mean and no empathy and, um, you know, against autism parents, which a lot of people are. But I just want to point out that there's a lot of us out there. First of all, I have three autistic kids. I'm one of you. If you're listening and you don't think you're autistic, maybe you just have ADHD or maybe you're neurotypical and you have an autistic kid, I'm on your side. Like, I think you're a part of our family. Um, I don't think that your voice should be spoken above your autistic child as they grow up or above me as it relates to autism. But I really do think that you are a part of our family because you are raising a kid that is part of our family, obviously, and you have a neurodiverse family and you're a part of us. And that's just a big reason why I wanted to share about the history and I wanted to share about what the medical community had kind of originally forced onto families at the time and kind of see the parallel of how it's possible that we do the same hurtful things at times. And honestly, I may have done that myself at times on social media. Um, I, when I first got into the autism world, um, you know, I couldn't believe the stuff that I saw that I didn't know about. I didn't know that there were people feeding their kids 
forms of bleach to cleanse their bodies of autism and to heal them. And I didn't know, yes, that happens. And I didn't know that there was people um, doing all kinds of fake news, fake science, pseudoscience, weird stuff to their children that can be very medically dangerous to them to cure them and things like that. So when I found that out, I was so shocked and defensive um, and possibly mean at times. And, and that's what you have to remember that everyone's in a very different place in their own journey. But at the same time, it's so important to take a step back and also realize that everyone's at a different place in their journey. And they might be asking an incorrect question, but we can genuinely share with them our thoughts and feelings without pushing them away and pushing them into the arms of an organization that may be spreading information that we don't agree with and that doesn't align with neurodiversity and and doesn't celebrate autistic children. Instead, it uh, tries to change them and turn them into what they see as better citizens, um, which I propose is forms of abuse and forms of neglect and things like that. And you see it everywhere. Um, and I just want to make sure that we are not doing that. Um, we are not perpetuating horrible theories that have been debunked and treating parents of autistic kids who very may well be autistic and not really know it yet um, and push them in the wrong direction. We should be inviting and welcoming, and I know that's not easy for all of us, uh, definitely not easy for me. I am not the most welcoming person. I know it may seem like it on the podcast, um, <laughs> but uh, that's really just come with new understanding of myself, um, I think, as a reaction to neglect growing up and childhood abuse and abuses done within school systems, church systems, and numerous workplaces um, that really affected me and harmed me. I was very reactionary and cold. Um, and I think that I know as a kid, I had a lot of warmth to give. I was not uh, what people saw as or see that stereotype of autism. I was very warm and full of life and I wanted to have fun and I wanted to be free and wild and live crazy and just do whatever the wind was telling me to do and go that direction and all of that. And there is a large group of autistic people, uh, probably mostly autism and ADHD together, uh, that neurotype where we just want to live free and have fun and that is not celebrated in our culture, at least here in America at all. Kids are meant to not have fun. <laughs> uh, I mean, like when I was a kid, I just felt like, why does everyone not want me to have fun? Like I really felt like that was like the gist uh, that people were telling me my whole life. Like, nope, you're not meant to have fun today. None of that. <laughs> Um, and I still kind of feel that way, like as an autistic adult, like it's very much, um, you know, I see my interests as fun. I see like who I am as 
fun. And if that looks a little weird or different to people, you know, that's not really celebrated. And I think that's why we start to mask and things like that. Um, so it's, it's just important to recognize that there's a lot of kids out there who weren't cold at all and maybe become cold because of the harsh environments that they've endured. Um, and with understanding, we can, well, self acceptance and understanding and things like that, we can kind of come out of that fog and haze that, that we kind of are forced into as, as a reaction to very negative environments that we endure, which basically comes from not accepting our differences and neurodiversity and lack of understanding and things like that. Uh, it's our duty to be a little more accepting of people early on in their journey or trying to get information on their child's journey. Um, because what happens, as I already said, is we push them into the arms of what some of us view as evil, or at least most of us view as negative and wrong information that does not serve our community. And when we attack on the internet, that's what we do. People shut us out. I'm not talking to autistic people. They are mean and cold. And unfortunately, us being re reactionary also causes other people to be reactionary. And it's a harsh and vicious cycle that I think a lot of the times we don't really mean to be within that cycle, but we need to be mindful of that and welcoming. Um, I mean, my goal is that neurodiversity, the movement grows with every person that listens to this podcast and with every person that I touch. And I'm currently working on quite a few things within my community here in South Philadelphia. Um, and not just, you know, on the internet or on podcasts and things like that. I really want to do like real work in my community. Um, it's not so easy to do this year with COVID and social distancing and all of that, but I am working on that right now. And I think that should be all of our goal when we can, when you're in a place that you can, um, it's really important to do work that you believe in on the internet, but also within the community. Um, and that requires being accepting of a very wide range of people all on very different, all within, sorry, very different places in their journey or their child's journey or their understanding. And part of acceptance is acceptance of not just yourself, but others. And that neurodivergent people are all going to look, think, act, all of that, behave, understand, learn, all of that differently. So thank you for listening today. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you being here and listening all the way to the end. Thank you. And if you take one thing away from today, I hope it will be that acceptance and understanding of yourself is so important, but also to the greater good of humanity to be understanding of them as well. Um, and, you know, being too reactionary just pushes people away. And maybe the question is harmful, but it's okay to softly educate people 
um, and open up dialogues and discuss free thinking and have those discussions and understand that we're not all going to agree all the time. And that's okay. Thank you. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Goodbye.